You ready? Okay. If you're not ready, get ready. Amen. Me too. Yesterday, on my, on my schedule, on my calendar, by the way, who are, who are my list people? Come on, raise your hand proudly. There's only four of us? Wow. How, where are my lists or dumb people? Come on. Thank you, Don. Okay, for all your honesty. Where's my, uh, what's a list, people? Should be the rest of you. Okay, what's a list? Okay. On my list yesterday was clean or rearrange the garage. Now, I will have been married 40 years. We will have been married 40 years come July. I should know better by this at this point, right, the, the minefield that it is to step into reorganizing, cleaning the garage. Because, guys, I like to think, I like to talk like the garage is mine. Yeah, okay. When I'm honest, I know better. It's not mine. But here, here's the key. And I didn't make it very far. I didn't make some progress, but here's the key. The key is, is needing, is, is clarity on what belongs in the garage, what is important, what is critical to be in the garage, and what doesn't need to be, shouldn't be in the garage. And that brings me back to my wife and her stuff and my stuff. And, and I'm quick to go, you know, if you would just get your stuff organized in my garage would be what it's supposed to be. And yesterday when I walked in there and I was looking at the, the things that needed to be done, I realized that the bigger responsibility is on me. Because in the midst of my garage are some amazing tools that humans have developed that we can do great things with. And there's some supplies. If you're having problems with a supply chain, come see me because I got some screws and nails and pieces of wood. And for the right price, you can have those things. There's things in there that are amazing, things that belong there, things that will cause good stuff to happen in the garage, projects and fixing things and things like that. But the reality is there's a whole lot of stuff in there that roots, it's connected to me that don't, shouldn't be there for various reasons. Stuff that I've collected over the, you know, the, the months, the years, the decades, if you will. Things that I'm just unwilling to get rid of. Because as soon as I throw it away, <laughs> then I'm going to need it. You know, there's all these different reasonings that go on in my head. But as I stood there in the garage, I realized there's things that belong here. And if they are here, then things can happen. But there's a lot of stuff that doesn't belong in the garage. And all that stuff that doesn't belong here is, is getting in the way of what really should be happening in the garage. Anybody remember the days where you actually parked your car in the garage? Yeah, I mean, I'm not even trying to get to that point. I just want the things to happen in the garage that should happen. In our, in our text this morning, we come to the church of Pergamum, and we're looking at these letters that God gave, these messages God gave to the Apostle John, and this is the third of the seven. And when he talks to this church, he says, there's some things there that belong there, and man, they're amazing. But there's some things there in your life, in that church, that don't belong. And let me just say it at the beginning. And I say this with grace. I say it to myself more than to, the, to all of us. God's not okay with things in our life that don't belong there. He's just not okay with it. Now, he's gracious and he's merciful. And praise God that he's patient. But we can't mistake patience and grace and mercy with him being okay with stuff that shouldn't be in my life. He's not okay with things in our lives that don't belong. There are things that are going to get in the way of what he really wants to have happen in the church. We're here for a reason. 
And you may be here this morning and say, well, I'm not part of the church. I haven't put my faith in Jesus, or I'm just a visitor. I'm just checking this out. So for you, I would say this. The, the church is not this building. It's not 7100 Fair Oaks Boulevard. It is a body made up of people, body parts, individual parts, all together making up the body that has a very specific purpose, mission in the world today. And Jesus wants certain things to happen in his church. There's the other thing you need to know about the church. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to the leaders of this church. It belongs to him. He's the head. And we're his body. And the head wants the body to look a certain way, behave a certain way, accomplish certain things. And when I walk into my garage, I have, I have this list of like things I'm going to do. And I did yesterday. I'm going to accomplish these things. And I realize there's all this stuff here that may or may not even be good or bad stuff. You know what I mean? Some of it's bad. Some of it's just broken and, and needs to be thrown away. But I can make a case for other things. Well, that's good, right? I mean, this piece of mahogany, that, you know what? That's worth. You know, I got I to gotta keep that and these screws. And, you know, everything you buy today, you get extra screws, right? Those little packages. And I got piles of those things. Those are good, good things, but they're getting in the way of what should be happening in the garage. There's things in the church. There's things in our lives. There's things in the church at that time in Pergamum that he's not okay with because it's keeping them from being what he intended them to be in that day in that city. And there's things potentially in us that if we don't deal with them, they're going to keep us from being what he wants us to be today. So John, or Jesus says to John, verse 12 of chapter 2 in Revelation, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Let me remind you who's writing the letter. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Do we understand that picture of a double-edged sword? What that represents in God's word? Remember Hebrews 4.12? The word of God is like a double-edged sword, able to cut through all the muck, right, and get to the, the heart of the matter. By the way, each of these letters has a little picture, a reference back to chapter 1 where John is describing who Jesus is. And he picks, the, Jesus picks, because this is Jesus introducing himself again to this church. He picks a part of that picture in chapter 1 to emphasize for each church. So keep that in mind, how he describes himself to this particular church. The one, the one speaking, the one writing is Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has a sharp double-edged sword coming out of my mouth. And this is what I say. Here's my message, or at least the beginning of the message. I know where you live. I know the circumstances in which you live. Why are you laughing? Because you're thinking about where you live today? I know where you live. Oh, yeah, I know where you live. I can find you. I know where you live. I know the circumstances in which you find yourself. And listen to how, listen to how he describes their day, their culture, their city, their, their situation. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Interesting picture. And in the midst of those circumstances, here's the good stuff. Here's the stuff that belongs in their fellowship, in their body, that church. You're holding on to my name. You're holding on to my name. It means to have a firm grip. You're holding on to my name. I may, I may, you may remember when I had my grandson here, and he, I had him come up, if you were here that week, and he came up, and I talked about we had gone to a water park, and they had one of those wave pools, and he's, he's three years old. 
and he had a life jacket on, but he really wanted to go in the wave pool, but he was afraid. He, and so he talked to me, and we, as a three-year-old talks, and so we made an arrangement. We go over there, and we go in the wave pool, and he holds my hand, and as long as he's holding my hand, he's great. The waves are knocking around. We're laughing. If I let go of his hand or if he got pulled away, you know, freak zone, and he's all back scared again. But let me tell you, that three-year-old has a grip. He, he was motivated to hold on tight because of the circumstances. And that's the picture here. You hold on to my name. You've got a solid grip on my name. We'll unpack that a little bit more in just a minute. You're holding on to my name, and you're not, you did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan lives. So let's unpack this just a little bit of the, the stuff that he commends them for. He says, I know where you live. And then he gives this picture of Satan's throne. Now, we, we don't know exactly what the, the intent of that is. There's a couple of different things that we could look at. And maybe all of them together kind of paint the picture of their, of their circumstances. Pergamon was the head of the Roman Empire of Asia, Asia Minor. It was the headquarters. It's where the proconsul lived. Think Pilate. Remember Pilate? He was the proconsul of Judea. This city was where the, the representative of Rome lived. And Pergamum was also, the, in connection to that, they were the first city to establish a temple to worship Caesar. And it happened to be Caesar Augustus. Because part of the Roman Empire at the time was the worship of the head, Caesar he was even sometimes called the son of God. That was a title that Caesars took on. And it was expected that you worshipped him as God. You went to the temple and you brought sacrifices and you declared him. Did you listen this morning? This is our declaration. They would go and they would declare that Caesar is God and we should worship him. And Pergamum was the first city to build a temple specifically to the worship of Caesar. Maybe that's Satan's throne. They had a hill behind the city, and on that hill was a monument, if you will, a place to worship Zeus, and it was in the shape of a throne. It wasn't alone on that hill. There were several other. In fact, I won't try to memorize, I didn't try to memorize them, but you might recognize some of these, um, some of these names. Um, Asclepius, anybody remember the god of healing? Okay, I didn't think so. How about Zeus? That sound familiar? Not the Zeus that you see in the movies, but the Zeus that people actually worshipped. Dionysus and Athene. They were prominent gods, little g gods, that were worshipped in this, in this city. In fact, that first god was the god of healing. And people traveled all over, from all over the Roman Empire to Pergamum to be healed of whatever it was their, their ailment was. Everywhere you turned in the city, there was the worship of these gods. was the center of pagan religions in Asia Minor. There was no escaping the spiritual climate of this city. And Jesus writing to this group of people, we don't know their number, we just know there was a church of people coming together to worship Jesus. And to those people, he said, I know where you live. I know how tough it is to live in northern uh, Pergamum. Okay, just seem to pay attention. I know, I know what it's like to live in the capital of California. I know what it's like to live in 2023. I know the circumstances that you're in. And I know that it's tough. It's hard. 
Everywhere you turn, you are staring into the face of people worshiping everything else but Jesus. Now, does that feel comfortable, not comfortable, familiar to you? It does to me. The life that I live, everywhere I turn, I'm staring at, I'm looking into the face of people, institutions, a culture that worships everything else but Jesus. Jesus says, I know. I know what you're facing. I know what it's like. And then he says, I, I know what happened. There was a, a period of persecution, and there was a man, man named Antipas who was actually martyred because he wouldn't worship Caesar. He would only worship Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us how he died. There's written historical records that record that he, they, they made a, a, a big bowl. It was a symbol of one of the gods out of brass, a giant bowl, and they had a lid on top, and they put him inside, and they closed up, they sealed up the lid, and then they lit a fire underneath the brass bowl until he cooked inside. Jesus said, even in that set of circumstances, even when it was would cost you your life to say, I stand with Jesus. I hold firmly to the name of Jesus. I am a Christian. I am a follower of the way. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of, of it costing, potentially costing you your life, he says, you didn't deny your faith, and you held on to my name. Any of this feel familiar? I know what it costs to wear my name. I know how our enemy works. I don't believe that Satan has a physical throne where he's, he, is a, he is a finite being. And we don't talk about that enough. He has, he has great capacity. And he knows us very well, does he not? But he is a finite being. He is not omnipresent. He has to move. Maybe he can move quicker than we can, but he has to move from place to place. And yes, he has an army. He has a legions of army that help him in doing what he's trying to accomplish. But I don't know if he has a physical throne as much as he definitely has his fingers, his plotting, his tools in various aspects of culture. And he's smart. Right? He knows where to get the most bang for his buck. And what Jesus seems to be acknowledging is I recognize the city you live in, the culture you live in is so harsh. It's so It's dangerous. For those who say, I'm holding on to the name of Jesus Christ. That's where I stand. He says, I know, and that's good. See, that's what belongs there in the church. A devotion, a commitment, a willingness to hold on to the name of Jesus, no matter what is happening circumstantially, far or distant, distant or close. Do you know what I mean by that? There's things that happen in other cities in our country, other cities of the world that impact us. There's things that happen downtown in Sacramento under that white dome that impact us. But there's also things that happen in our own families, in our own marriages, in our own relationships that impact us. Choices that are made, things that are happening, behavior. And Jesus says, I know. I know. And it's good. I want to commend you for that. If you are here this morning, his commendation would be the same to you as it was then. I know how difficult it is to be named with me, to stand with me, and yet you have and you've held on to me and you've not denied, you've not minimized, you've not hidden the fact that you are a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And that's good. He commends them. But how do we do that? How do we hold on to his name? Uh, before, I, before I lose the moment, the word here where he says Antipas, you know what he describes him? And he says, I know. Listen, remember what he said, the description, my faithful witness? It's the same word as Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea. The Greek word is martyreo. Does that sound like anything that we would have in our English language today? And that's what it became known. It's somewhere in this journey when, when, the, when Greek speakers would use the word martyreo, it meant to give a testimony. It meant to speak about something you knew about. But as people did that in the name of Jesus and they lost their lives, at some point the meaning of that word martyreo, to give witness, actually meant to give your life for what you believe. You tracking with that? That's the word he uses here. How do we do that? How did, how did Antipas do that? How do we hold on to Jesus in the midst of the storm that we might be facing or the circumstances in which we find ourselves? I found many verses that I wanted to go to. I just narrowed it down to one, okay, for the sake of time. You with me? Matthew chapter 11. If, you, if you're following along in your phone on your Bible, go to Matthew 11. It'll be up here behind me as well. But here's Jesus speaking, and he says, Come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary in your burden. Who will stand with me? Thank you. Let's just be real, folks. Who are burdened? Who are heavy burdened and weary? Then this is for you and for me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you. You may not even see yourself as weary or burdened. You think, man, life's going good. All of you. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I'm gentle and humble in heart. This is Jesus speaking, and you will find rest for yourselves because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do I hold on to Jesus in the midst of, of challenging circumstances? We don't use the oak or the, oh, the yoke. I tried it as parents. You know, I would yoke my kids to me and I'd drag them around. I'm kidding. Wow, you got, you, what do you think of me? This idea of a yoke where you put two animals together and you, you use, you use met, right, wood and metal and, and, and chains that you clink them together and you put two animals together so they can move in the same direction, accomplish a common task. And they can do it together, right? But they don't have a choice, right? Once it's on, boom, you're locked in. Jesus uses that apparatus as a tool to describe what it looks like for me to hold on to him. Now notice, notice the imagery there. There's a, there's a responsibility I have to hold on to him. The animal had a, had a responsibility, if we can put that on an animal, to not, you know, and fight and, and just, just say, okay. You ever put, anybody have a dog where you put the leash on the dog and the dog just goes like bananas and goes crazy, you know? And all, okay. You know, and the, the expectation is, you know, calm down. I'm not taking the leash off. You're going to be on a leash. It's clicked. It's on there. This is who you are. This is who I am, dog master. And we're going to take a walk, or you're going to drag me around the neighborhood with one of those two. The, the animal had a responsibility to accept the situation. We have a responsibility to make a choice, to grab onto him, to come to him and let him attach that yoke. But then notice that when we're yoked to him, the holding on now really gets shifted to him. And he's holding on to me. 
If I'm honest in my Christian life, in this journey with him, yoked to him, there's times where, I don't know if we used to do this with the kids, where you get two people and you're holding their hands and you hold them up so their, their feet are spinning. You know, you ever, you know what I'm talking about? You, that's what my Christian life has been like. I'm like, I'm just, but Jesus is holding on to me. He's got me. We're yoked together. And my responsibility becomes looking at him and saying, okay, stop fighting. Stop trying to do this on my own. This is hard. This weight that we're pulling is hard. And Jesus is right there saying, I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm here. Come on, let's do this. Let me do the heavy lifting. We'll do this together. Because it is going to get tough. And it's going to get tougher. But choose me. Hold on to me. Stop fighting against this yoke. And I will hold on to you. These are the words of Jesus for us. Let me say it this way, if I can summarize it. A life of faith, this life of holding on to him, or I'll say a life of faith is only possible when Jesus is all that I'm holding on to. And I struggle with that. I struggle with holding on to him and him alone. Because over here, that looks like that would help. That This looks like it might help. I have capacity. I have experience. I a life of faith, raising up disciples who live by faith. A life of faith is only possible when I'm holding on to Jesus and Jesus alone. If I'm bringing something else into it, it's not faith anymore. I'm no longer holding on to him. There's things that belong in the garage. There's things that belong in our lives. Things that belong in the church. And there are things that do not. Let me give, I said I'd only give you one verse. Will you forgive me if I give you two? Okay, good. Grace. It's called grace. Romans 10. This word confess kept coming up in my thoughts as I was studying this week. The need for us to confess or declare. You saw the video. To declare who we are. Declare who Jesus is to us. And sometimes it's very, you know, open and public and a declaration. Other times it's quiet. Sometimes it's in our thoughts. Sometimes it's just in a whisper. I declare. I confess. I confess that Jesus is Lord. And I believe in my heart that the Father raised him from the dead. Do those words sound familiar to anybody? That's the Apostle Paul saying this is what it looks like to, to come to a life of faith or establish or have a, a new creation, have a relationship with him established. It depends on our part, our responsibility, is this by faith confessing. I declare to you that Jesus is Lord. He's God. He is, he is my master. I confess that to you publicly. That he's Lord. And I believe in my heart that the father raised him from the dead. Conquering the consequences. The pain. The penalty of sin. We sung about it this morning. The blood that was shed on the cross. What a crazy thing. If you just stop there. And if you don't pause for a moment. And say wait a minute. What are we singing about? We're singing about what the word of God reveals. That Jesus my creator was willing to die on a cross. To give his life. Instead of me paying for my sins. He took on himself. The consequences of my sin. And so I confess to you publicly. As brothers and sisters. Strangers. Guests this morning. That Jesus is Lord. He is my Lord. He is my master. He is my creator and he's my savior. And I believe my life of faith is built. My life is built on the belief that the father raised him from the dead after he was crucified and buried. And there's new life found in him. There's a confession. 
that Jesus is looking for. And he commends these people for confessing him publicly, holding on to him in very difficult circumstances. Verse 14. But, there's that word. However, I have something against you. There's some things in your garage that need to be dealt with. There's some things that don't belong there. Now, if you don't like the garage thing, you can come up with another metaphor, right? How about that cabinet above the refrigerator? What's up with that? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are laughing, you know. I'm a short guy. I can't reach it to start with. But some of you go home. Some of you don't even know. Some of you don't even know there is one above your refrigerator. Maybe there's not. Others of you have no idea what's in there. Because it just gets put in there when you don't know what to do with stuff. And then it, it just, it's. Or maybe it's the drawer in the kitchen that gets all the collection stuff of everything. The cords, the, the, the everything. Or maybe you have a closet in your house that if you invited us over to your house for dinner, you say, hey, there's the bathroom, there's the kitchen, we're going to hang out here. Just don't go in that closet. Because if I open the door, life is just going to come, right? So you pick the metaphor, you pick the picture. But he says there's some things that we need to address. I have a few things against you. You have some, you hold, literally, it's the same word as he used before. You're holding on to some who themselves are holding on to some teaching. And he identifies two specific philosophies or false teaching that people were communicating in this church. You hold, to, you hold on to those who have the teaching of Balaam. And he gives us a brief unpacking of that. Who taught Balak, King Balak, to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites. To eat meat sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you're also holding on to some who hold on to. You have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. So if, you, if, you're, if you're simple like me and you need to write something down to take with you from this morning, here's what I encourage you to do. Write down the word confess and write down the word repent. Just write it on something, put it in a note, and a couple times this week come back to that and say, what, what did we talk about? Confess and repent. What's that about? Just write those two things down. Repent, Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. If you don't clean the garage, he's going to do it. If you don't clean that cabinet or that whatever it might be, Jesus says, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it with the sword of my mouth, with the truth. He mentions the teaching of Balaam. If you want a reference, it's Numbers 25, chapters 25 through 31. Uh, most of us will remember Balaam as the guy who, what, what was, what's his claim to fame? A donkey. Did you call him a donkey? Or you'd say he, he had a donkey. He rode on a donkey that talked. That God gave him the ability to talk, to confront him. Why would God use a donkey to confront a man who was a prophet of God? A man who God spoke through. Because he was hired to curse God's people. And every time, he said he couldn't do it. But every time the king paid him to do it, instead of cursing them, he ended up blessing them. And so finally he said, king, you're going about this the wrong way. Now catch this. This is the one who knows God, speaking for God. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to just tempt God's people with sin. Specifically, bring sexual behavior into the worship. Because these, these pe your people and the people around God's people, their worship involves sexual immorality. So just tempt them, provide them the opportunity, and that will work. And guess what it did? It did work. Tens of thousands, I think it was 24,000 if I remember right, is recorded in numbers of those that 
God judged with death because his people did go after the things of this world. Second Peter, Peter writes this in his second letter, chapter 2. They have gone astray, and he's speaking to teachers in the church. They have gone astray by abandoning the straight path, and they followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but received a rebuke for his transgression. A donkey that could not talk spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. Second Peter chapter 2. What about the teaching of the Nicolaitans? We don't have anything in Scripture other than this mention here. The, 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 his, the historian, and I just blanked on his name, Irenaeus, I think his name was, wrote that the Nicolaitans were founded by Nicholas of Antioch, who's listed in Acts 6 as one of the first seven uh, deacons, man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and somewhere along the line, potentially, we don't know, that he had this teaching. And this teaching of the Nicolaitans would become known and, and identified as Gnosticism in, at the end of the first century into the second century. And there's several tenets of this, but the one that maybe he's addressing here is that, well, the physical world and the, and the spiritual world are, world are disconnected. And the physical world was not created by God. It was created by a, a part of God that kind of went haywire. And oh, by the way, all of us have a piece of God in us too, was part of their teaching. But they, the way they practiced was, we can go worship Caesar. I worship you, Caesar, and avoid the consequences of not worshiping Caesar. There was, a, there was a temple in Pergamum that when you needed fire, now that doesn't make sense to us, right? We just light a match. But think if you couldn't start a fire, what would you do? You had to go get fire, right? You go to the campsite next door and go, hey, can I borrow them? You know? And so they would go, people had to go to this temple, they had fire there all the time for people to come, and if you worship the deity, they would give you fire to take home and cook your meal. Well, we can do that because they're not really gods, and we can live, we can give ourselves to fleshly, physical sin and still be followers of Jesus. There's lots more to what they taught, but Jesus, in speaking to this church specifically, says, you have those that are teaching these two false teachings. If you remember when we looked at the church in Ephesus, we were told that they hated the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I told you we'd come back to it. Here we come to Pergamum, and they're tolerating it. Don't miss that. What we initially, ooh, that's bad, that's bad. If we're not intentional, if we're not holding on to the name of Jesus, if we're allowing things in our life that don't belong there. Do I need to unpack that? There's a lot of practical to that, right? What I'm watching, what I'm listening, what I'm reading, what I'm okay with. Oh, it's not that bad. Hey, it's, it's PG-13 or whatever your measurement is. Over time, we move from recognizing the harm of something and the sinfulness of it, the, 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 the harm that God sees it doing, the hurt to his heart. And over time, we tolerate it. And there's things in my garage... That's the best term. I've tolerated that pile, that stack of things, so that I don't even see it anymore until I'm ready to do something that I should be doing, and it's in the way. The Ephesians, the Ephesians church hated it. The Pergamum church tolerated it. It's interesting that Balaam's name in the Hebrew, when you break it into the two root words, it means to conquer the people. If you take Nicholas, take the name Nicholas, and you break it into its roots in the Greek, it means to destroy people. 
Can I suggest to us with the strongest possible passion that confession of the truth must be followed by a letting go of everything that is not true? If I confess that Jesus is Lord, he is my master, he is res resurrected from the dead, that confession should lead me to that other word, and that is repent. That's his word. Did you see it in your text? I wanted to make sure you have it, that you see it. It's not me. It's God saying, Jesus is saying to his church, repent. Confess me as Lord. You're holding on to me. You're holding on to my name in difficult circumstances. That's amazing. That's, I commend you for that. But I have a problem. You're tolerating some things that don't belong in your life. Repent. We know what the word repent means, right? Go a different direction. It literally, if you go to the core of the words, the, the, the root of that word, it just means to think differently. Because let's be real, our actions are the result of how we, before I stop and turn around and go the other direction, I first think. I first come to the conclusion, I'm going the wrong way. What do I need to do? I need to stop. Okay. I need to go this way. That's up here. It means to think a new way. Think differently. Take a look at what's in your garage and acknowledge with God's direction, this is good. This is good in your life. This is what you should be doing as a follower of Jesus. So what we should be doing as a church. However, there's some other things that need to go. Confession of the truth is followed by letting go of all that is not true. Did you put 35 or 30? You put 35, okay. Good for you. Thank you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 8, chapter 1, verse 8. There is no chapter 8. The Lord's message rang out from you. Paul is speaking to a church in Thessalonica. Not only in Macedonia and Archaea, the whole area, Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. Paul says, I'm traveling around spreading the gospel. All people are talking about is the church in Thessalonica and your faith. What are they saying? They themselves, people are reporting what kind of reception we had from you. And this is what people are saying about the church in Thessalonica. How you turned to God, that is confession, right? That is confess. How you turn to God from idols, that is repent. That's repentance. We first confess. We turn to God. If we get them backwards, can I suggest to you it's just another version of self-help. If you're like, oh, I'm going to change. I'm going to make my life. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Before you confess him as Lord, before you're committed and, and devoted to holding on to him in difficult circumstances, he's my master. He is my Lord. He is my Savior. Okay. I got stuff in my life that needs to go. Do you know how many days, I, how many times I put it on my calendar to clean my garage? I have lost track of how many times. You can ask my wife, what are you doing this Saturday? I'm cleaning the garage. What do you, you know, I think in our fifth year of marriage, I'm cleaning the garage, you know, on this Saturday. It just becomes self-help. We first confess, Jesus, your Lord, your God, you've rescued me. Jesus says, amen, I've, that just, we're on the same page, and I know life is hard, I know there's struggles, and you're holding on to me. Now, I need you to repent from some things, so that we can do some cleaning away of the compromise. 
I'm, I'm concerned that compromise has become a good word because we hear it so much in the context of politics, right? And people working together. And I'll, I'll, I'll admit there's a place. But can I say to us, you're here this morning, so you chose to come here. So There's no place for compromise in the life of a disciple. There's just not. It doesn't mean we're legalistic. It doesn't mean we're holier than other. We come across it. We've got it all figured out. There's a humility to repentance. There's a brokenness to repentance. And it's only going to be effective when I first have confessed Jesus is Lord. He's the head of this church. Not me, not the leaders. Him. There's a cross up here because he's the Savior. We'll come to the tables later this morning because he is God. He is Savior. We will sing more this morning because he is God and he's worthy of our worship. And from that place, when God is saying, oh, that's good, yes, now, let's take a look at your garage. Let's take a look at your cabinet, your closet. There's some things. If you're holding on to me as the truth, there's other things that you cannot hold on to even in the slightest. Compromise is not a good word when it comes to following Jesus Christ. If we don't clean house, God will. I got some other verses. I'm, we're not going to look at them. Anybody writing down things? Okay. Romans 2, verse 4 and 5. These are all verses about repentance, and it's the heart of God. It is the heart of God. It is the work of the Spirit. Romans 2, 4 and 5. Acts 17, verses 26 to 27. Verses 30 and 31. Our text this morning, verse 17. Anyone who has a hear should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the church in Pergamum. Is that what your Bible said? Master Pat? Okay, you're using the right translation. doesn't say that in mine either. It says to the... Does crossroads fit into the churches? It does. So listen up. Listen up, church. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give victor. I will give the victor, the one who holds on, the one who confesses, the one who repents, the one who holds on to his name. Through whatever circumstances, I will give two things. I will give hidden manna, which I believe is a reference to Jesus himself, John chapter 6. You know what I'm talking about? I'm the bread of life. He gives us life in this world when we hold on to him and feed on him alone. He will also give us life in all eternity. man in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus. I will also give him a white stone. And this is amazing. On the stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is your identity. Now, it might say redeemed. It might say forgiven. I don't know because it says we don't get to know. But it's going to be a name that Jesus gives to the victorious, to the one that holds on to him, the one who lives this life by faith, confessing him as Lord and repenting from what needs to be cleaned out. And it's not a one Saturday thing. You guys all with me on that? Gonna, I, if I get it all cleaned out, will I have to do it again? I will because, because yeah, you know why. This life of, re, of confession and repentance and when you stand before him one day. He's going to give you a stone. And this picture here is how jurors used to vote in a trial. A white stone meant innocent. A black stone meant guilty. Jesus will give you and I a stone that says you're, you're innocent, you're forgiven. But there's going to be a name on here that says, Kurt, this is how I've always seen you. This is who you are to me. Now let's spend eternity together. Isn't that cool? I said it, didn't I? All right, my time is up.
Jim, where are you at? Come up. And as Jim's coming up, i got to read these verses. Because we need to respond this morning. But I'm, here's what I'm asking you to do. Can you close your eyes and not fall asleep? Okay. Can you, can, can you do that? Okay. Sometimes I struggle with that. Listen to these words. Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war on war in righteousness. His eyes are like a fiery flame. Many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth. So that he might strike the nations with it, he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of, wine of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, and here is his name. He is King of Kings, and he is Lord of Lords. Father, help us to confess Jesus is Lord, not just in this place, in this moment, but in our lives this week and help us to repent give us what we need to take action to allow you to clean what needs to be cleaned knowing that we will stand before you one day as king of kings and lord of lords amen, amen.